Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt. Welcome to another episode. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Anthony, we love basketball and we've been watching basketball for years. Who are some of your favorite players and why? We do love watching basketball. Um, so I got into basketball uh, in the late 90s uh, because the Knicks went to the finals. And uh, <clears throat> and early 2000s is when I like started to really heavily get into it, like watch it religiously. Um, so I started with Kevin Garnett. Uh, as my favorite player. First, it was Latrell Spiruel because he just had, like, all the heart in the world. Uh, then it was Kevin Garnett because he was, like, the first time I recognized a player who could fill up every aspect of the stat sheet. And he did it consistently for basically his entire team. I started playing, like, fantasy basketball around that time. And he was uh, my first-round pick my, yeah, every season because... You know, he was the top point getter on his team, the top rebounder, the top assist person, the top steals person, the top blocks person on his team for like five consecutive years or something like that. This is like Garnett MVP years um, before he went to the Celtics. And so uh, I'm, I guess because of that, I started to like that archetype of player of, you know, players who just do it all for their team and elevate their team as a result of that. So, you know, when LeBron started refining his game, probably around, like, I want to say, like, 2007 or so, he was still really good in his earlier years, but that was when he started, like, doing it all for his team on levels of, you know, all-time greatness. Uh, and then Chris Paul, who obviously was never a top rebounder for his team, uh, but was a top assists, points, and steals person for his team for sure. And uh, the way he, you know, I think with him it was like that was when I noticed decision-making started to become apparent as like a key trait. Uh, but then I started souring on those three players uh, specifically because of like uh, narrative reasons, which I'll refrain from explaining. But as I look back at that, I kind of find myself gravitating towards those kinds of players like uh, this season it would be like Julius Randle, uh, Nikola Jokic uh, as like all-time greats. Uh, Giannis would be another one who I'm hoping like takes like one small step because he does it all right but he just doesn't he's not quite the shooter that he needs to be to be uh, that kind of like unstoppable force. So it's I'll... a lot to ask Giannis to take a small step. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he can get from like half court to the 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 hoop in like three or four steps. Three, I think I've seen. <laughs> yeah, that guy is just phenomenal. So I'll throw this right yeah. back at you. Uh, who are some of your favorite players? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I I'm a little bit older, and so I grew up with some of the basketball of the late '80s and going into the '90s, and. Um, I was very much uh, susceptible to the national narrative. I didn't have an opportunity to watch anything other than what was on the like main channels. So all the big teams, all the big players, I watched Magic, I watched Bird and the Pistons. Um, I, I certainly, you know, was was in love with the Bulls in the '90s. That's when they had their six championships in in seven or eight years. Um, I. 
I would say the players that really stuck out to me, though, as I got older and matured and, and was like not just following all the superstars, were the Steve Nashes. Uh, I really like passing. Jason Kidd, I, I love really fancy ball handling, really nice passing, uh, being able to control the game with tempo, and maybe not necessarily being the highest scorer, but being a dominant offensive force because you're controlling what both teams are doing. And I really like good defense. I I, I like uh, a good interception in the in the lane or a n- nicely timed block, a seemingly impossible block. Uh, so certainly, I seem to value a lot of athletic talent. But high IQ is important to me. I think for for players that I enjoy, Tracy McGrady is uh, one of those players that just he like you mentioned with Garnett can do it all. He just seemed he had the athletic body to do anything and everything and he had so much grace the way that he moved down the court and and through defenses that i think that reflects kind of the kind of game style that i enjoy watching you certainly mentioned a bunch of like all-time greats there and uh, i remember one of the first conversations you and i ever really had in depth about basketball was like trying to compare the all-time greats across generations uh, and we were trying to figure out some like way to do it. And I think we started thinking about it through philosophy. But then uh, yesterday, I had this, uh, this idea that I hadn't thought about before, which was um, how frivolous the conversation was when you take your own personal experiences into account. And it's something I thought about uh, mostly when you're comparing like Jordan and LeBron. Mm. Um, so what I mean by that is like I find that this isn't true for everybody but that the people who hold Jordan as the all time greatest never to be uh, unseated from that is because they watched it happen and Mm. uh, for them he was a very transcendental type player and uh for almost everybody, it was the first time anybody had ever seen those things that he was doing done. And you could take all of that same stuff and plop it onto those who say that LeBron is the greatest all-time player. And they do they do most things similar, right? They have the athleticism, the decision-making, the, the cutthroatedness, although you would say LeBron is probably on the softer side of that. <clears throat> Um, but you could also say that, like, all those people, um, when they're watching LeBron, they're watching him do these things for the first time in their experience. And I'm purposefully using the word experience uh, because, you know, you hear all the time in NBA discussions, like, well, this isn't a new thing. You know, Wilt was doing this back in the 60s, and Kareem right. was doing this in the 80s, and Magic was doing this in the 90s, and Jordan was doing this in the 90s. And so, like, you can easily say that something new that's happening isn't isn't really new, um, except for, you know, Lillard and Curry jacking up threes from the, the half-court line with ease. <laughs> Maybe that's new. Well- <laughs> And it's really interesting. I mean, part of it is, too, what do you grow up with? Um, where is the game at at the stage where you enter it? Because the way that you elevate the game and our dynamic for that time period, uh, the future generations get to see what you did and practice what you did earlier 
and it just becomes part of the game. So they have to elevate it to something different. So it seems really difficult to compare and contrast. Like Pete Maravich, the way he changed the game and, and passing and shooting and and just his style of play, it transformed a lot of how the NBA works. And now he would just be kind of treated as an average player if we didn't if we just picked him up and transplanted him into a new era. But of course if he grew up in this era and saw like a Pete Maravich play, his his mind for the game and his dedication to practice I'm sure he would be doing something new in this era, uh, just you know, like Curry and, and Lillard stretching the threes with their ball handling and, and playing with defenses. So I agree with you. There's there's something difficult and frustrating about these conversations. You don't want to ignore the greatness of the greats in the past uh, in pure either raw numbers or just trying to do a raw comparison of how they played you're probably going to favor newer players, but it's because the contexts are different. They're not, they're not in the same situation. They don't have the same rules. They don't have the same kind of um, opponents. So how do you compare a Bill Russell and a, and a Joel, Joel Embiid? Like, I don't even know how to start with, with those two. They're just so different and so dominant in their own era. Right. And uh, it's also kind of like, it's, fun for a little while but some people take it so seriously that it it's just not fun anymore and so like i guess what i was thinking about was um so last week we had talked about uh, perception and uh you had brought up partiality right and so some of these conversations they definitely have a bit of partiality to them uh, I'm very impartial to this gigantic plane flying over my head right now. <laughs> I just heard somebody feel loud on my end. I don't know if you can hear it. No, this <laughs> thing is so loud that I like <laughs> I can't even hear anything. I could just see your face going on right now, and I'm just like. Yeah, well, what's, what's funny is I didn't recognize that you had a plane because I had a guy like revving his engine and just taking off. So I thought you were hearing like, stealing wheels. That's funny. Uh, this is definitely one of those moments where I'd say cut, but I'm not going to cut it because of how funny it is. And uh, uh, it'll be funny in the playback to see if like the motorcycle is just as transparent as that plane was. <laughs> it's like a military plane or something. It's crazy. Those <laughs> happened at the same time. Uh, <laughs> the, the the philosophical gods are controlling us right now. They're manipulating us. These could be our two favorite podcasts, but not of this era. Right. <laughs> um, okay. yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll just jump back in with the uh, the partiality aspect, right? And so, um, uh, we'll talk about biases in a different episode. But the reason why I bring back the partiality is because you had mentioned uh, that nuance last week, that partiality is tied to experience and, um, and perception. But I'm going to throw in a new word this week that we uh, only sort of talked about a little bit last week, which is perspective, right? And that there's yes. also this, like, um, I just couldn't stop thinking about this yesterday, how closely related perspective and experience are yeah thank you for that transition so the last week we discussed briefly the phylogenetic order and at some point things seem to move from like mere functionality to something like thinking uh you know we might call it sentience and so uh with that we have this kind of idea of subjectivity we move from the realm of of purely objective things happening in the world to something like 
experience what it what it's uh like to experience something and that means that all of a sudden you're not part of the world i mean you are but you're situated in that world right which means you have a context and to have a context means to have a lo- a location a an orientation and a point of view and so as we talk about perspective i think it might be useful to just briefly go back to like the bare basics of what that means to for where the word perspective came from and then we can get into more like the significant subjective kind of elements yeah that sounds good when you say uh, i'll just ask you a question and hopefully this is a good transition point which is that uh when you say orientation does that only account for the physical aspect of your place in the world or does it also take into account some of those more metaphysical components like um uh like your sensory input your your thought processes your experience that sort of thing terrific question and it does allow us a moment to kind of bring up that this touches on a lot of questions and we can't possibly address them all so uh part of what we're dealing with this season is experience and thinking and the question is well who or what is thinking and so we want to talk about like minds and sentience and the kind of organisms that can think but we're actually going to bracket all of that we're not we're not going to try and address philosophy of mind this season <laughs> because we want to get to it in a future season uh in depth um which means we're going to focus more on the the processes and and that side of it so orientation i was trying to pick like a, a neutral term that would allow the physicalists who say that everything is just bodies and and uh, bodies in motion and and physical matter, and dualists or other kinds of um, people that would accept like a, a mind that's separate from the physical universe and and orientation allows you to kind of say you can orient to or or from or away towards some physical location and metaphorically towards some ideal or principle or values and away from others right so i'm I'm trying to use that kind of as an ambiguous term to not decide that in this season no that's good and that kind of makes me think back to uh, what we just said about uh, partiality too yeah absolutely and and so one of the questions i'm going to kind of stumble between am i using a metaphor or am i using a word literally (laughs) because the words have taken on common parlance and and might be considered literal uses of the word even if that's not how they were used initially so like the idea of perspective right seems to really have drawn out of art where it's something that kids try to do when they try to draw uh like a chair right is they try to draw all sides of the chair they they know what a chair is made of and it has four legs and so they try to draw all four legs but if you look at a chair you may only see three of the four legs one of them might be blocked behind another one but but the child's like no but i know the chair has four legs so they're trying to like fit every element on there what what um artists do and what developed in in the history of art was like taking a look at how things appear to us not what we know them to be and so if I only see three legs, I'm only going to draw three legs. And I've got to angle the chair a certain way. If I, if I, what I know is a, a square that I'm sitting on looks like a diamond, I've got to draw it like a diamond. You know, if it's arced, you know, whatever, I'm drawing what I see. And so to do that, you have to think about the point of view, the place where the viewer is, 
and distance, right? So, so perspective is drawing off like where where is the viewer supposed to be situated? Are they up high looking down? Are they down low looking out? Is it a straight on? Are they off to the side? And and the perspective is how does your vectors? How do your vectors kind of veer off as you go into the distance? I know I'm blocking my face. No, but, I was just going to make a joke about how uh, you'd be a very good vector mathematician and you got the rays going in all the right directions. <laughs> yeah, and so that's perspective, right? It's like from one point, I'm seeing a whole bunch of things, but I'm only seeing it from that angle. And if I want to see it from that angle, I have to change my point of view. I have to change the locale of from which I'm situated in uh, and if we want to take that, uh, I guess, metaphorically in intellectual atmospheres, if I want to change my perspective on something, I need to change the way that I'm oriented, how I'm looking at it. And that can be with new concepts, that can be with more enriched concepts, more information, that could be um, stripping things down, trying to, instead of looking at all the details, let me look at generalities. Uh, or vice versa, you know, instead of talking in broad concepts, let me just focus on a specific example and deep drill in and notice all the elements of it. I hope I'm not stealing your thunder here, um, but when the way you described that reminded me that typically in education, um, we use the word perspective intentionally. And now I think we probably mean perception, but uh, the way I'm about to explain it really makes me think of uh, perspective the way you just described it, which is that um, as people develop, right, you think of like kids learning through play, uh, playing with, toying with their imagination, right? They're working through different experiences so that they can better understand their world, right? And so they're not just physically getting new perspectives as they move from room to room and see it from different angles. You know, you're looking down and uh, you're sitting down and looking up at most objects, but then an adult picks you up and now you're looking down. You you can get a sense of the 3D realm, but they're, they're also doing these things uh, cognitively and they're trying to under make sense of the world around them from that from that uh, ideal as well. I'm trying to avoid saying the word perspective a billion times. <laughs> Um, no, that's good. Sorry. Oh, uh, I was just going to add that. Uh, and this even happens as we get older and like, you know, play starts to become less of a foundation of our of our learning environment and more about um, we start having discussions. Right. And you hear it all the time in um, in sense making conversations, um, especially with people who have different backgrounds and experience than you do. Um, uh, mm. This is kind of a low-hanging fruit, but I think a lot of times of like when you're trying to make sense of race um, and ethnicity, right? Is like you speak to people who are outside of your own ethnicity, ethnic background, and now you're getting uh, new perspectives on what life was like for other people too. That's good, and I do want to talk about that in more detail. Um, briefly, I want to just touch on what you said about children uh, playing, because there is a very important role, I think, for imagination. You know, you, we see children trying to act like their parents. They see their parents do things uh, and try to do that. Maybe they want to try and take care of a doll and, and, and understand what it's like to be responsible, to be a parent, you know. Uh, maybe they play role play school and want to be the teacher right they're, they're trying to imagine themselves 
in a different role than they are based on what they've observed from others and filling out the details from within. And I'm not sure that it's that different for for us as adults when we encounter new situations. Uh, the imposter syndrome, like you, maybe you're one of the top in your class in, a lot, in academics, and then you get to a graduate program where everybody's the top of their class, and all of a sudden there it's not easy. You're you're dealing with difficult information and you think, wow, do I really belong here? And so the, the advice that's always given is fake it till you make it. But there's something to like imagine yourself as somebody who has mastered this information and you will your confidence will help you tackle the information so that eventually you can be a master of that information. So there imagination does play a role in that that I think we need to come back to in future episodes. I just wanted to, imagination's a key concept. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, I had never thought of imposter syndrome as like adult role-playing, <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that's actually, I'm like boggled right now. I'm like, have that, have that, is that what I've been doing all these years? <laughs> uh, or maybe we need to encourage more role-playing to overcome imposter syndrome. Yeah, all those people who are very into D&D like yourself uh, have an advantage over others who just don't incorporate that into their lives enough. That's funny. Uh, so so what you were getting ready to talk about with <clears throat> people having unique experiences, I think, is the hotbed of what we really want to get into. But I think we need to set the stage briefly. So I asked uh, that we kind of look at an article um, by Thomas Nagel, what it's like to be a bat. So when we think uh, he uses, Nagel uses the example of bats, right? We have study bat behavior, uh, study bat physiology. We know a lot about chemistry and biology and neurology and can scientifically articulate. We can, first of all, describe what we see bats doing. Second of all, we can learn the physical processes and explain what is happening when those behaviors are happening. And so something like echolocation, which is not something that most humans do, some do, uh, but most humans don't use echolocation to navigate their world, bats use it, and we can articulate what is sonar, how does it work, what is a bat doing to compensate for poor eyesight. But there, that isn't... That's an explanation of the processes that isn't an explanation of what it's like to be a bat. And so Nagel uses this example to point out not only are there the processes of the physical body that we might call thinking, there is the what it feels like to think, to have thoughts and experiences. When something pinches me, I can explain the pressure on my skin and nerves. I can talk about electrical impulses going to my brain and coming up. But what does that pinch feel like? And he calls that qualia. So that's just a technical term I want to introduce because it, it really emphasizes the subjective side of what we might otherwise think of as a purely objective process. So one thing that comes out of this article, at least it's reading between the lines, but it feels like there's a hope that Nagel has that if we pay attention to qualia, and recognize it as a distinct feature of consciousness as opposed to the processes of the activity itself, that maybe we can start describing qualia and find patterns in qualia and develop a kind of science of subjectivity. And so what I think he's doing is both carving out subjectivity is different from the objective observer kind of descriptions of the world, 
Like we can't reduce subjectivity to those processes. But maybe that doesn't mean that subjectivity is anti-scientific. Maybe it's possible to still be scientific about subjectivity. It's just different from the things that we can do as an observer. Uh, let me see if I'm capturing this correctly, which is that uh, qualia w is a way to to kind of is orientate the right word so that uh, two parties would have some similar reference point when referring to the same thing. So, so the qualia would be uh, the what it's likeness, the, the subject subjective experience. A science of subjectivity would would presuppose or, or would try to reach a place where if we pay attention to those subjective experiences and carefully describe them, eventually maybe we can develop a common language by which we can we can describe things scientifically, even though they're individual partial perspectives on on reality, uh, which is a fascinating suggestion, but not the way that his article seemed to have been picked up. <laughs> Instead, people latched onto this individuality of qualia and thought experiments like the inverted color spectrum came about. Right? If we, you and I both use the word red to describe a color, I wish I had something red. I'm going to change it to orange. If we both uh, call this orange, but my qualia is something like what other people would call green, and your qualia is of orangeness, I've just learned to call my experience, which is kind of green greenness, I've learned to call it orange. So we're both using the same term to describe the same object's appearance, but the way that you experience it could be different from the way I experience it. And people latched onto that possibility, that the fact that we can't know uh, what your qualia is like, I can only know what my qualia is like, um, and kind of latched onto this, you can never know what it's like to be me, and I can never know what it's like to be you. So so almost the opposite of what Nagel seemed to be suggesting, that maybe we should develop a science of subjectivity. Kind of one of the first outgrowths out of this was, wow, well, I guess we'll never know what anybody else feels like, ever. <laughs> That's so bizarre to me. Because um, So right now I'm thinking about like that exact thing, right? And if you did it from a... a a physical perspective physics i'm talking specifically about right and like you look at the wavelength that that piece of was that paper or piece of envelope or something yeah right um <clears throat> that that thing was right it would show you some number like seven no less than that uh like let's say it's like 580 nanometers um i still wouldn't know if that number relates to the color that you're seeing or the color that i'm seeing but now there's like two reference points right there's the color that we're both calling it and the number that that is physically associated with it but i it's so interesting that you say that because to me like that at least tells me that we're talking about the same thing even if your perspective is different so it's kind of sad that uh, that it went that direction because, like, that gives me sense that at least our language allows us to uh, make sense with relation to each other rather than just, like, I'm floating off in this world and nobody understands me. Yeah. 
Well, thank you. I think this is why we're such good friends because this is uh, this is where I kind of got wrapped into language as being central to so much of philosophy. Uh, I do think that subjectivity needs to be preserved and recognized. I think Nagel makes a very strong point here that the what it's likeness, the qualia of the experience, is indeed something more and beyond just being able to describe the physical processes. The wavelength of, of light is something that we can determine without perceiving it. We can use tools to, to do that work for us and generate a number that we can use to describe it. But what it's like to see light at that wavelength is something we must experience. And we may use similar tools, right? We both have rods and cones in our eyes and it goes, you know, the image is projected and, and we experience it through our brains and it gives us a feeling. But that that feeling or that perception, the question is, just because we use the same tools, is is there a reason to think that the subjective experience is the same? And my frustration, I think, with the the leap into the, no, we must all be different, is that the absence of proof, you know, the absence of evidence that they are the same has been taken to be evidence that they're not the same. And and really, it's absence of either way. We don't know whether your qualia and my qualia are the same or different. So why assume that they're different? Yeah, I was going to, um, I guess, push the thought further and ask you, like, what do these uh, subject matter experts have to say about when you say you're angry and I'm able to interpret that as, um, you know, my own experience, but also like when I see you behave angrily and you're saying that you're angry through that behavior and I observe that you're angry through your behavior, that like we're making that, that cognitive connection there of what the word anger means. Yeah, I mean, so, so behaviorists would point out and say, well, we don't, since we can't, know that there isn't an inverted feeling spectrum as well, uh, then we have to just focus on behaviors and describe things that we can observe. And the qualia is there, but it's not important to science. Uh, I'm, I'm not satisfied with that. And I think when we talk about language and perception and perspective uh, next episode, I hope that we can talk about reasons why maybe we can trust our language a little bit more. Uh, but but initially, just from the idea that we have subjectivity and the distinction between the observable world and the introspective world, I'm not sure that we can bridge that gap definitively. I, I, I think we ought to treat it as bridged, but, um, you know, I, I can definitely, I have to grant it to the people that want to be complete subjectivists that there isn't a, a like, foolproof argument to show that we must accept that our quality are the same. Uh, to me, it's like uh, trying to find the theory of everything, right? There's like little components yeah. that give rise, but there's no evidence that this whole thing can be wrapped up nicely. Uh, but we still try for it. Yeah. And uh, imagine. Sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just uh, just imagine this thought experiment. This is how crazy this would have to be, right? Is uh, imagine that you stub your toe and the quality you experience is the most pleasure that it is possible for a human to experience, but you personally hate that feeling. <laughs> and so you respond to pleasure with a yuck or a, a grimace and, and 
gripping your toe and hopping around, your behaviors match somebody who experiences it as the worst pain, right? And so we can both call stubbing your toe painful, but for one of us, for and but for both of us, it's an unpleasant experience. Neither one of us want that experience, but for one of us, it feels like stabbing or or blunt trauma or whatever, and for the other one, it feels like a euphoric uh, kind of rush to the head. Uh, so inverted, I'm not sure that the inverted kind of feeling spectrum does that much to separate us. Yeah. If that makes any sense. No. And, uh, there's two things that's popping into my mind right now. So one is like this, this relation to that argument of greatest players over, over, uh, generations. Um, but also, um, so I asked like how closely language and perspective were. But I, I feel like I need to take another step back because um, physiology also plays a role in this, right? Because like you just described, like if you were to take that sensation and put it into somebody else, they would feel very, you know, um, euphoric. But that's not the experience that you're having, right? It might be euphoric to somebody else, but for you... It's, you know, you might, um, uh, you could, you would say that it's actually very painful, right? And your, your body physiology is displaying, is actually demonstrating all of those painful, um, not triggers, what's the word I'm looking for, qualities that somebody who's familiar with pain would observe. Like, I stub my toe and I'm like, mm. <laughs> yeah. right and you're doing you're doing the same thing and so like i can't say that what you're experiencing is pleasure right I, i'm like picturing somebody who's like a uh, kind of orgasming and they're i'm like that's definitely not pain <laughs> yeah uh, and so to get to our discussion about the the greatest of all time in comparison to players uh from this what you mentioned about who you grew up with, what you watched, there's there's a <clears throat> what it was like to see something for the first time. There's a nostalgia to where you were when you experienced watching a player versus reading about them or what hearing about them. You know, we we all know Wilt Chamberlain's numerical statistics are just almost unbelievable. They're they're just so incredible. Who scores a hundred points in a single game? I know that's happened like a hundred times or something in history with high schoolers and, and a couple times in college, but like in a pro game, you've got five guys trying to stop you and you're scoring four, four points a minute or more uh, because nobody can stop you. That's just, I, I can't even make sense of that. Um, but what would that be like if who was guarding him was um, Serge Ibaka and Shaquille O'Neal? If they were double teaming Will Chamberlain, would he still score 100 points in the game? Would his game be different in this era? Like the the things that we use in our imagination to try and make those cross generational comparisons, because we are role playing at that point. We're trying to figure out which traits can we bring with, and which way we have to insert into the scenario to make it a fair comparison. And we're totally using our personal experiences and and preferences when we're using our imagination to play out that game. Yeah. That's a really good point, and uh, you remind me that um, 
What's even more impressive about the science of subjectivity standpoint is that when you consider that everybody has, there's overlapping experiences for sure, but everybody has different experiences in their upbringing that forms each of us. And despite those differences, we can still relate subjectively with each other. And, yeah. Uh, so like that just makes like one it makes it even more mind boggling. And two, um, I can't emphasize enough how important um, sympathy and empathy are in in our like evolutionary function. Hmm. That's an amazing point. I feel like I feel like we need to revisit that. Yeah, I only, awesome. to, I only wanted to throw it out there because I didn't want to totally like derail this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. I think uh, I, I think we're getting close to wrapping this up, but I just want to take a moment to emphasize. I very much believe that there is something like qualia that that there is a what it's likeness to experience. I very much oppose this idea that because we're all unique and have our own perspectives, therefore we can never know what it's like for another person. Uh, and so, as we do talk about empathy, I hope that we can also investigate this like. How much similarity is this? Sure, we're unique individuals, and it's true. Nobody has all of the experiences that I have that go into shaping my perspective on things. But don't we have enough common experiences that we can make some sense of other people? Uh, or, or is everybody just a complete alien? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it reminds me of um, this classic writing trope that I absolutely hate in... Uh in TV shows, right? Is the whole, um, there's two, one of them is like the, I'm going to, I'm lying to you for your own protection thing, which assumes that uh, I know all of your experiences and I know exactly how this is going to play out. And if you, if you only, you were me, you would be able to make the same decision too. Um, and then the opposite is the, uh, you can't possibly know my experience. So shut up basically right which like everybody watching there's some like first of all the writers are using that to express some sort of commonality with their audience which already is like a failing of that writing style but then two everybody watching is also like we all know that that's not how the world works and so it, i don't understand how it works for anybody really <laughs> That, those are amazing. I hate those tropes as well. And uh, I think we bonded about this many times about certain kinds of shows and writing. All the CW but, shows. <laughs> but I think you really pointed out some some hypocrisy in those that I, I'm not even sure I had noticed. Like the, I lied to to you for your own good. I hadn't thought about the fact that it, it creates an imbalance. Like my my subjectivity is more objective than your subjectivity. Like I'm able to experience both mine and your point of view, but you can only experience your point of view, right? If, if we recognize that we truly are subjects and engaging in the same shared world, then I should share my perspective and information with you so that we can make a collaborative decision that brings both pieces to the table. Why try to solve a puzzle with just one corner piece? All right, so as a teaser to our audience, we're going to get more into language and experience next week. So a whole episode where neither of us say anything, right? 
I think that usually how those conversations go is we break down. <laughs> <laughs> we just look into the camera. <laughs> so I'm sure that you're all really excited for that now. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, and uh, hopefully it'll give you a chance to reflect on your unique perspective on the world, but also how you can share your perspective with others.